This week on the show, we show you how to mitigate Spectre and Meltdown, vulnerabilities on HP ProLiance servers. The OmniOS installation setup is covered. We also show you a little bit of debugging a memory corruption issue on OpenBSD. The call for testing for OpenZFS native encryption, we reiterate that so that people try it out. Uh, we covered the Asigura TrueNAS backup appliance shown at VMworld, as well as NetBSD 6 end of life and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 263, Encrypt That Pool, recorded on September 12, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're glad to have you with us this week. And starting right into the headlines is how to mitigate Spectre and Meltdown on an HP ProLiance server with FreeBSD. We never get out of this Meltdown inspector, it seems, but having mitigations in place is good. Yeah, uh, in particular, it takes more than just patching your FreeBSD to be completely safe. Uh, and so this article is going to show you how to actually apply the microcode updates from inside FreeBSD. Oh yeah, this is over at Admin by Accident, who sent us uh, that blog post of his. And yeah, let's go over it. It says, uh, as recently announced in a previous article, I wanted to write a couple of guides on how to mitigate the Spectre meltdown vulnerabilities on your Unix environment. It is always uh, good and I hope to standard practice to have your systems patched. And if they aren't for whatever reason, uh, then you know make sure you take the necessary steps to get the, the OS level fixes for Spectre meltdown. However, uh, I never planned uh, to do any articles on patching. Nowadays, it's a no-brainer uh, and operating systems have uh, all the necessary tools to update the operating system. But this vulnerability is more complicated than that. Since Spectre and Meltdown are both uh, hardware vulnerabilities, major ones, um, there are, uh, it means that just patching the OS isn't enough to solve the problem. Um, for several reasons, uh, the impact on both Intel and AMD systems and even some ARM systems is ubiquitous and doesn't matter what uh, doesn't matter what uh, operating system you run, the hardware still has the bugs. Uh, the, yeah, those chips. Um, so the question is, uh, if you need to do more than just update the operating system, what do you need to do? Uh, so patching these vulnerabilities implies both having the operating system level fixes, but also having the hardware fixes. Luckily, that doesn't mean you have to go out and buy new hardware, mostly because they haven't made new hardware that's actually not vulnerable yet. <laughs> yeah, it won't be enough for a while. Yeah, so uh, what you have to do is load what's called microcode, which is basically firmware for the CPU. Um, so what is microcode? Uh, if you There's a Wikipedia article linked if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of it but it's basically a layer of code that runs on the chip and allows them to patch problems out of the chip. You know, Intel learned their lesson after that. Was it the Pentium? Uh, uh, yeah, the diff could bug. divide properly or something? By zero uh, or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was a long time ago. But uh, they learned that we need a way to fix problems in the field rather than having to uh, recall the processors because... 
that would be really bad for our business. Uh, so they come up with these microcode updates, uh, but you need to apply those. And there's basically two different ways you can apply those. One is via the, the BIOS, the, the motherboard firmware on your system, which can basically load that new microcode every time the system powers up. Um, one of the downsides to that is a, you, you know, if you've ever tried to update your BIOS, it's slightly risky procedure and it usually involves, you know, MS-DOS floppies basically, <laughs> uh, or some emulation of that. Uh, and it's just not fun. And the other problem is it's very hard to undo, uh, especially when these, uh, extra microcode fixes were coming out, they were causing problems and it meant you wanted to be able to undo it, which could be a problem. Yep. So... Operating systems offer you the ability to um, apply the microcode from the running operating system. So with that, you would uh, basically, on FreeBSD, you would have it apply the microcode as the kernel boots uh, each time you boot the system. So then if it turns out that microcode is causing a problem, you just say, all right, don't load it next time, and then reboot, and you're back to the, the stock microcode uh, applied by your BIOS. Yep. Uh, however, this can cause problems uh, doing suspend and resume, or maybe the microcode doesn't get reloaded and so on. Or even just there's uh, a window at the very beginning of boot where maybe it's not applied. Uh, and so the FreeBSD Foundation is sponsoring some work to load the microcode even sooner uh, to help deal with those problems. But that's not really related to this article. Uh, yep. So how do you actually do it? So this article walks you through that. Uh, so first, they're showing that they're running on a patched uh, FreeBSD 11.2. Um, and then they're going to use package to get the tool called uh, x86info, which will tell them a bit more about their CPU. Uh, and they have some details on that. Uh, and then you can grep for the version of the microcode you're currently running, and it will show the version. Um, and then you can get newer microcode from Intel manually, or uh, FreeBSD provides a package, dev CPU dash data, which will contain the updated microcode for your CPU. So when you install that package and in your rca.conf enable microcode underscore update underscore enable Google's yes, now every time you do the service microcode update start, it will apply the newer microcode. And you can see it finds uh, this newer microcode and applies it to each one of your CPU cores. Mm -hmm. And now your system is running the updated microcode. Until and the next reboot. When you run the x86 info, you can see it's running the new version. If you don't enable the service in rc.conf, just run it once, uh, it'll be updated until you basically restart the processor, uh, allowing you to undo it if you need it as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, seems easy enough. Yeah, so uh, if you want some help walking through that, it's in the article there, uh, and there's more work coming to make this uh, even easier and better. Yeah, so that we have a bit of bit better version and a better way of even better way to do this. But uh, this one is already working and will give you a running system with the latest CPU patches. Right, and that's you know really what you're after, because uh, you need you, just patching the OS isn't enough because this is a hardware vulnerability. So the the software can try to avoid 
uh, tripping up the problem, but you really need the microcode to make the CPU not do the wrong thing. Yeah, and you don't want to have your normal uh, BIOS upgrade procedure where you have to restart the machine, go into the BIOS, and no services are running during that time. And if you have a server, you want this thing having yes. That's uh, the other nice thing the whole is time. that this microcode can be applied at runtime, uh, so it doesn't require you to reset the system. Yeah, no downtime, and your servers are protected against those vulnerabilities. Okay. Uh, next up, we have a look beyond the BSD Teacup OmniOS installation. So we thought we covered this um, for you. So we uh, tear a little bit off the beaten BSD path here, but uh, it's look it's good to look at a little bit left and right what's also out there. So the article here starts with a look beyond the BSD Teacup OmniOS installation. Five years ago, I wrote a post about taking a look beyond that Linux Teacup. I was an Arch Linux user back then, and since there were projects like ArchBSD, called PackBSD today, and ArchHerd, I decided to take a look at and write about them. So things have changed. Today, I'm an, a happy FreeBSD user, but it's time again to take a look beyond the Teacup of operating systems that I'm familiar with. And so why Illumos and OmniOS? Uh, there are a couple of reasons. The Solaris or derivatives are the other big community in the Unix family, besides the Linuxes and the BSDs, and we hadn't met so far. Working with ZFS on FreeBSD, I now and then uh, I read messages that contain a reference to Illumos, which uh, certainly helps to keep up the awareness. Of course, there also been a bit of curiosity. What might be the OS be like that grew ZFS? Also, the Ravenports project that I participate in planned to support Solaris or Illumos right from the beginning. I wanted to at least uh, know uh, somewhat or to be prepared when support for that platform would finally land. So I did a little bit of research on the various derivatives available and settled on the one that I had heard a talk about at last year's conference of the German Unix user group, OmniOS, Solaris for the rest of us. I would have chosen SmartOS as I uh, admire Brian Cantrell, uh, but does not uh, getting to know Illumos, I prefer traditional tra installation over a run from the RAM system. Of course, FreeBSD is not run by corporations, especially when compared to the state of Linux. And when it comes to sponsoring, OpenBSD also takes the money. When it comes to macOS as to desktop systems, uh, while, oh no, sorry, when it comes to FreeBSD developers, there's probably some truth to the claim that some of them are using macOS as the desktop systems, while OpenBSD devs are more likely to develop on their OS of choice. But then there's the statement that every innovation in the past uh, decade comes from Solaris. Beehive alone proves this wrong. But let's be honest, two of the major technologies that make FreeBSD a great platform, ZFS and DTrace, actually do come from Solaris. PAM, the uh, pluggable authentication modules, originate there in a more modern way of managing services as well. Also, you hear good things about their zones and a lot of small utilities in general. In the end, it was a lack of time that made me cheat and go down the easiest road, create a vagrant file and just pull a VM image off the net that someone else had prepared. This worked so that uh, just to make sure that the Raven packages work on OmniOS. I was determined to return though, someday. You know how things go. Someday is pretty common alias for probably never actually. But then I heard about a forum post uh, on the BSD Now podcast that you probably heard about. Um, the title, Initial OmniOS Impressions by a BSD User, caught my attention. I read that it was written by somebody who had used FreeBSD for years but loathed the new code of conduct enough to leave. 
I also oppose the conduct and have made that pretty clear in my February post. Um, yep. And as I stated there, I have stayed with my favorite operating system and continue to advocate it. I decided to stop reading the post and try things out on my own instead. Now I finally found the time to do so. So what's next? Here we go. The um, That's uh, it for part one. In part two, I'll try to make the system useful. So far, I've run into the problem that I haven't been able to solve, but I have some time now to figure things out for the next post, and let's see if I manage to get it working or if I have to report failure. So here's a couple of screenshots that you can um, see how the installer looks like and um, what the system looks from the like from the it's inside. It's got to be better than the old one. I used, <laughs> I tried to set up, I think, Open Indiana or something early on uh, to test some ZFS patches, uh, and it had the you know press eleven or press F eleven to continue. And uh, <laughs> do you have a subnet? Question. Oh well, yeah, that was, question. <laughs> wow. Are you on a subnet? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's do you have a subnet? Do we have a subnet? Well, I hope <laughs> not, I do. Not the spare one <laughs> on me. <laughs> oh yeah, there's ZFS installation. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Yeah, for people who are. So? Uh, Adventurous. Yes, if you're interested, check that out. Um, so, moving on. Um, so, when you run top on FreeBSD and you see your memory broken down into all these different categories, but what do those mean? Mm -hmm. um, luckily, uh, earlier this week, I convinced Mark Johnston, a FreeBSD VM developer, so he works on the virtual memory subsystem, um, to update a page on the wiki that had been being cited in a bunch of places explaining what these mean. Uh, so uh, Mark's updated the explanations to be more correct. There were some things that weren't exactly right before. Um, and to add some of the new types that have appeared in the meantime. So I thought I'd briefly just go over what each of the different types of memory that you see in top actually are. Mm -hmm. So the first one you see is active, which generally makes a bit of sense. That's the, uh, you know, all the memory that's actively or recently being used by an application. Uh, but under the hood, that actually works a little different than you might think. So that's, um, so memory in the system is actually made up of pages, not individual bytes, but chunks of four kilobytes. Mm -hmm. um, so each four kilobytes has an address or whatever, and the active queue, it's actually uh, a list basically, uh, of pages contains any page that is actively or recently being referenced by userland. So when you uh, have a userland program and it asks for some memory, calling the memory allocate function, uh, then it gets back a bunch of pages from that. Uh, and those pages are marked as having been used recently. And so they stay in the active column. So this actually contains a mix of clean and dirty pages. Because uh, when uh, a program gives some memory back, we don't necessarily uh, do anything because of that right away. Um, so the pages are regularly scanned by uh, a kernel thread called the page daemon, which if you run top with the capital S flag, you can actually see the process. Um, so each page is visited once uh, every time or every whatever the sysctl vm.pageout update period, however many seconds that's set to. So the goal is that, you know, once every X seconds, 
uh, the page daemon will check each page and see when the last time it was used by userland is. And once it's not being used for long enough, it will go to one of the other queues. So the scan mm -hmm. checks to see if the page is being actively referenced uh, still, and if it is, then it stays in the active queue. If enough scans complete without uh, seeing a reference to a certain page, so I've scanned the queue a bunch of times and this page is not being used by anybody, then that memory will move from the active queue to the inactive queue. So this provides kind of a pseudo least recently used. Uh, I know we've talked about that a bit before. So you mm. have this list, and every time you use a page of memory, it goes to the top of the list. Yep. Uh, and then eventually, when you need uh, the stuff on the bottom, just sinks lower and lower as it keeps getting not used, and eventually it can fall off. So then you go to the inactive queue. So the inactive queue contains pages that were aged out of the active queue. So something that was being used but doesn't seem to be being used anymore. Uh, and any pages that were evicted from the buffer cache. Um, so if you're using UFS or uh, any other file system that's not ZFS, then the OS has this buffer cache where it keeps uh, files you've recently read off the disk and so on. Yeah, for performance uh, reasons. Yeah, so that if you read the same file again, it's faster. Um, as things aren't needed there anymore, they go to the inactive queue because uh, they were in the buffer cache, but we haven't been asking for them. Uh, so they're good candidates for us to clean that memory and use it uh, actively for the user. Uh, mm -hmm. But if the user doesn't need it, there's some value in keeping it around with that old data in it because if we end up asking for that data and we haven't recycled that page yet, then we already have that data and we didn't have to go to disk. So the inactive queue actually contains both clean and dirty pages. So it has pages that have useful information in them still, uh, or pages that actually have some information we have to do something with before we can uh, recycle them. So uh, in this case, the pages are scanned again by the page daemon, but it starts at the head of the queue. Uh, and when there's a memory shortage, uh, pages which have been referenced uh, are moved back to the active queue. So if this page uh, suddenly is being used again when it wasn't before, then it moves over to the active queue. Um, and if it's not, then it goes to the very end of the inactive queue. Or sorry, if it is being used, not actively though, then it goes to the end of the queue so that we won't check on it again until we've checked everybody else. So pages uh, that are dirty are moved to the tail of the laundry queue. So we find that we need some memory uh, and this particular page needs to be cleaned before it can be used by somebody else. Then it goes uh, to the tail of the laundry queue. Mm -hmm. And if nobody's using it at all and it's clean, then it becomes free memory and somebody can use it right away. So this implements a second chance LRU, right? So the memory was active or was in the buffer cache uh, and then it, we didn't seem to be using it. So we put it in this inactive pile, which means that if nothing else needs it before we end up needing it again, then it's still there and we can use it directly. But yeah. if, we have other demands and we need that memory, uh, we can easily clean it and, yep. and use throw it, it away. Mm -hmm. So it means we don't throw away the data that's in it until we're sure that we need that for something else. Uh, so it gives us an extra chance that maybe 
the old copy of the data will still be useful. Could come back again, yeah. So then we get the new one. Uh, so I think this appeared in FreeBSD 12. It's new. Uh, I don't remember if it's in 11 point something. Yes. Well, we can look. It is in 11.1. So I think it's new there as well. Uh, so we have this new queue called laundry. Uh, so this queue is for managing dirty but inactive pages. Uh, that means they have to be cleaned or laundered before they can be used by somebody else. Uh, usually this is because it contains some data that we need to swap out uh, or that we need to write to disk or something has to be done before we can give it up. So one of the big improvements here is that this is managed by a separate thread, right? So the page daemon used to have to go through this whole inactive queue and find these dirty pages and decide to clean them or whatever. Uh, with this new laundry feature, we have a separate thread that takes care of the cleaning so that we don't uh, end up burdening the page daemon too much. Uh, so the, the laundry thread uh, launders a small number of pages to balance the inactive and laundry queues. Um, so the idea is that it doesn't waste CPU time doing more work than it needs to, but it's always working a bit in the background. So how frequently you do laundry can depend on you know how many clean pages and the page daemon is actually freeing. So if we're actually freeing up a lot of memory and we don't need to clean this dirty laundry, then we don't need to do it, right? If you're going to a lot sure. of conferences and you're getting a lot of clean pictures, <laughs> you don't have to do laundry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's probably where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the lot, the size of the laundry queue relative to the size of the inactive queue is mostly how we decide. If you've got a big pile of laundry, you should probably do laundry more. So if the laundry queue is growing, then we'll launder more and more frequently to get that pile back under control. Uh, so pages are scanned by the laundry queue, and again, starts at the top of the queue. Uh, pages which have been referenced are moved back to the active queue uh, or put down to the tail of the laundry queue. Uh, dirty pages are laundered and uh, moved close to the head of the inactive queue. All right, so once you've cleaned the laundry, you stick it near uh, the top of the inactive queue. So just as normally happens, when you do laundry, you put the clean clothes on top of the already clean clothes <laughs> in your dresser, uh, resulting in you using the same shirt a bunch of times, and the one on the bottom doesn't get used very much. Yeah, yeah. That, it's all too realistic. Right. In this case, it's specifically so that when the page daemon is looking for inactive memory that it can use, uh, the laundered memory is near the top of that list, so it doesn't have to scan all the way to the bottom before it finds mm. that nice chunk of free pages. Yeah, it has something to take right away. Yep. And then you have wired memory. So this is non-pageable memory, uh, which means you can't write it out to swap uh, to free it up temporarily, right? Regular userland program like your browser, if it's got a bunch of memory it's not using right now, we can write that out to the swap drive or swap partition uh, in order to free up that memory to use it for something else. And then if we need that, tab you haven't looked at in two weeks in Firefox, then we can read it back in from the swap and swap something else out to keep the memory going or whatever. But yeah. the kernel that, you know, the part of the kernel that does the swapping for you probably shouldn't be swapped out. It's very essential to have. Yeah. yeah. So uh, non-pageable memory just means that it can't be uh, freed or swapped until it's explicitly released by its owner. So there's a bunch of different ways this can happen. Uh, 
you know, the kernel memory allocator does wired memory. So all the network stack and things like that use it. But even user land, if you use mlock, the part of mlock that lets you say, I need this to stay in memory, um, then user land can lock some memory. Although there are system-wide and per user limits on that so that you can prevent a user from locking up all your memory <laughs> and not actually using it or whatever and trying to use it against you. Uh, but you allow applications to say, hey, this bit of memory, even if I don't seem to be using it a bunch, I need to always be able to read it really fast. So make sure it's always there. Yep. And uh, to prevent other problems, the ZFS arc, which is basically, a, and the UFS buffer cache are wired. Uh, the point being that if this is a cache from disk, we need it to be fast and we don't want it to come from disk because that would defeat the yeah, purpose. That and defeat the purpose. Moreover, the buffer cache in the arc should shrink if you're under that much memory pressure rather than be swapped out right that that memory could be thrown away instead of uh having to be treated specially mm. and some memory is permanently wired like the copy of the kernel itself that exists in memory and then you have free memory which is obviously memory that's available to be used instantly mm. yeah that's the take your memory pile so is are the, are these descriptions um, in the man page with uh, or are they updated from what the wiki page says now? Uh, so the wiki was updated earlier this week. Mm. To, okay, so because it, it was unlikely. it didn't have laundry included in the list because uh, it's relatively new, and some of the descriptions were not exactly correct. And also, you know, Mark added more detail about exactly when things can move between the lists and so on. That is probably too much information for a user. Uh, but it's very useful if you just want a very basic understanding of what's happening there. Yeah. Uh, so for man pages, it's kind of interesting of which man page does this belong in? It's not really how it's, to use top, right? Yeah, it's uh, memory behavior or memory management. Yeah. Or really, it's like this kind of belongs in the man page for the page daemon or something. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, top could reference that. But yes, maybe we could get... Uh, this into the right kind of a man page and because it almost seems like we need two versions like we need the one a user just wants to know what these mean yeah. in basic terms and then a more complicated one is i as a developer want to know exactly when a page moves from x to y or whatever mm. yep def uh, uh, but yes the now that we have the expert version of the information hopefully we can work that into some man pages and uh, the the handbook i think some of this is in the like the architecture handbook vm chapter but mm -hmm. that's for developers right? mostly this was being referenced on it's not stack overflow but stack overflow's version of ask sysadmin questions mm -hmm. um i think it was the unix stack or whatever um, like exchange or what it is yeah yeah um there was it the comes up frequently. Comes when... up frequently uh, and so getting good answers in there, yeah. Mm. Okay, nice. Maybe we'll cover a couple of system uh, internals uh, in the future when we have mm -hmm. a bit more information and people will provide them for us. Time for news roundup this week. Uh, starting with OpenBSD saves me again. Debug a memory corruption issue. 
So this is over at Nanxiao. Uh, and the blog here says, yesterday I came across a third-party library issue which crashes at allocation memory or allocating memory. So you can see here, um, six sec fault, the classical thing in int malloc in user lib libc, and that doesn't look so good. And it is obvious that the memory tags are corrupted. But who is the murderer? Since the library involves a lot of maths computation, it's not an easy task to grasp the code quickly, so I need to find another way. First, open all warnings during compilation, like w all, nothing found. Okay, nice try. Uh, second is use valgrind, the memory debugger, or it gives you a bit more information about, um, but unfortunately valgrind crashes itself. So valgrind, the impossible happened, killed by fatal signal, and here's the stack trace. Okay, interesting. Number three, change compiler, use Clang instead of GCC, and hope it can give me some clues. Still no effect. Hmm. Number four, switch operating system from Linux to OpenBSD. The program crashes again, but this time it tells me where the memory corruption occurs. So it says here, program terminated with signal segmentation fault, and in an add move uh, error reading variable, hmm. add mod, sorry, and oh, that's the issue. So it's much more, uh, at least we get a, a pointer or a hint where this is occurring. And I figure out the issue quickly and not bother to understand the whole code. OpenBSD saves me again. Thanks. Yeah, so reading error messages, not just the, the ones from the compiler, but the actual stack traces is a useful trait, especially when things go wrong and you have no way of finding out, you know, where this is coming from. And if... Uh, OpenBSD has apparently a better way of telling you about these memory corruptions or more precisely pinpoint where they are. It's it's a bet. I mean, if you're not only just uh, programming, but also just being a regular user, it will help you telling you which um, where the problem actually is located. Yeah. Uh, it's very helpful to have useful error messages and extra detail and uh, the bits you need to actually dig into things. Whereas error message is like the impossible happened. <laughs> yeah, that helpful. sounds, it can't possibly happen. Yeah, in computing this, the impossible is uh, sometimes more possible than, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I see, I noticed from computer science education from our first semester students where they are like, hey, I have a question, this thing doesn't compile and the, 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 the solution is right in the error message. Read the error message and yeah, it's typically, oh, I forgot the semicolon there or something something simple. But yeah, knowing about how to debug properly and uh, reading these uh, stack traces can help you uh, determine what's the problem. And it's probably yeah, mostly... Uh, but at the same time, you know, it behooves us to have good error messages. For example, uh, somebody on Twitter found uh, yesterday that when you, try to, when you do zpool create some pool name and a couple of disks one of those disks actually didn't exist. It had a different name. It was called something different than they expected, right? They put like ADA0 instead of DA0. Yeah. Um, well, the error message you get is no such pool, the name of the pool you tried to create. Well, it's like, well, duh, I'm trying to create that pool. Of course it doesn't exist. But actually yeah. the error is trying to express when it that says, uh, basically the kernel was telling the command line tool that doesn't exist. And it assumed we were talking about 
the pool. But actually, what I was trying to tell you is that that disk you specified doesn't exist. That makes up but, the pool. Yeah. Um, when it can only return one error message, basically. Mm. Uh, it, it, it returns a number that maps to an error message. Uh, it does. It, it's hard for it to know which one of the five things you specified is the one that's wrong. Yeah, because there are multiple problems that could trigger this. And yep. that's one a generic error message then for this. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a problem. Well, yes, in particular, it just says, it returns error, doesn't exist. And then the command assumes, well, in the current context, we're trying to operate on pool foo, so foo doesn't exist. It's like, actually, well, we're in the create thing, so one of the disks doesn't exist. But, you know, I specified five disks. It would really be helpful to know which one didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. at least... Uh, yeah, it's it's a pointer to yeah. To it it, it, it sends the user looking in the wrong spot for where the problem was. Mm. Yeah, so small things like this uh, can make a big difference. I mean, you don't want to spend hours trying to figure out why this one program doesn't uh, run through and sec faults all the time. But if the program uh, emits a helpful error message or the operating system helps you with that, that's that's priceless because it saves you a lot of time. All right. Next up, uh, we have something that people have been uh, waiting for for a long time, but it's uh, coming yeah, I think we sooner. We mentioned it on the other episode, but it's worth repeating because we really want people to test this sooner rather than later. Uh, yep. So if anyone has an interest in the native encryption features of ZFS, so that is having individual data sets that can be encrypted with different keys and only encrypt certain data sets, uh, then we would like you to test the ZFS crypto merge uh, branch. Uh, mm -hmm. which has is basically FreeBSD 12 plus the ZFS crypto feature. Um, and so the user interface is the, the one uh, from Dato that's uh, been being worked on upstream in ZFS and Linux. Uh, and it's pretty close to the, the interface that you use with the Oracle one as well, but it's not related to the Oracle one in any way. Anyway, uh, so you can run the git uh, command specified in the email there and that'll check it out and then build it like you would FreeBSD uh, and you will be able to play with it. Uh, note that this feature, once it's enabled on a pool, it can't be unenabled. Uh, so it means that if you create a pool or upgrade a pool using this code, you can't go back to not having the crypto feature. Uh, yeah. Like if you, you won't be able to import it on uh, FreeBSD 11.2 or something like that. Um, so probably best to test on test machines or VMs and things like that, and not to use this in production yet, uh, because there might be a couple more minor changes that happen before this lands, and that uh, could end up being, meaning that the test pools you create with this might end up being incompatible with the final version. Yeah, I don't know that that's very likely, but anyway, you've been yeah. warned. T testing is important at this stage because then people can report back things they found or that are not yep. working properly or whatever. So that's a good feedback for the developers. Yep. Uh, and if you want to know more about the feature or the implementation, uh, there's a link to the upstream commit, uh, but also check out the OpenZFS Developer Summit uh, about two years ago. The 2016 one is uh, the creator of this feature, Tom Caputi, uh, walked through his design uh, and how it works and how it deals with deduplication, although you still don't want to use deduplication yet. Some work mm. in that area is coming, and hopefully uh, dedupe will be better in the future, uh, but right now it's not. Yeah, don't uh, get ahead of yourselves. Uh, 
even though and, ZFS has yeah. all these cool features, not all of them should be used. Yeah. Uh, Think about it first. And yes, dedupe plus crypto has uh, some trade-offs, and you probably don't want to do that if you're worried about the security of your data. Yep. But for testing people and having a test pool around to give it a little bit of a whirl, to actually also get familiar a little bit with the interface and how to create these encrypted pools and data sets, it's a good way of um, trying that out. Okay, and then we have message from VMworld 2018. They showcased VMworld. the hybrid cloud. Oh, did, oh, VMworld, sorry. That's the conference yeah. Um, so they were showcasing a hybrid cloud, persistent memory, and the Azigra TrueNAS backup appliance. That's on the IX Systems blog here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that conference happened recently in San Francisco. Yes, it uh, was last week or this week, something mm -hmm. like that. Very recently. Yep. <laughs> yep, it's fresh out of the oven. And um, during its last year in Las Vegas, before moving back to San Francisco, VMworld was abuzz with all the popular buzzwords, but the key focus was on supporting a more agile approach to hybrid cloud. And surveys of IT stakeholders and analysts agreed that most businesses have multiple clouds spanning both public cloud providers and private data centers. With the exact numbers vary, uh, the uh, over half of the businesses have a hybrid cloud strategy consisting of at least three different clouds. And IX Systems, in playing in that space, having this focus on hybrid cloud provided the perfect timing on our announcements that they have linked here, that IX Systems and Asigra are partnering to deliver the Asigra TrueNAS backup appliance, which combines the Asigra cloud backup software backed by TrueNAS storage. And Asigra TrueNAS backup appliances provide a self-healing and ransomware-resistant OpenZFS backup repository in your private cloud. The appliance can simultaneously be used as a general-purpose file, block, and object storage. How does this tie in with the hybrid cloud? The Asigra cloud backup software can backup data from public cloud repositories, Google Suite, Office 365, Salesforce, etc., as well as intelligently move backed up data to the public cloud for long-term retention. And uh, so here, another major theme uh, at the technical sessions was a persistent uh, memory. As vSphere 6.7 added support for persistent memory, either as a storage tier or virtualized and presented to a guest operating system. So and as detailed in their blog post from the storage network in, uh, initiative, uh, Persistent Memory Summit 2018, persistent memory is rapidly becoming mainstream. And that bridges the gap between memory and flash storage, providing near memory latency storage that persists across reboots or power loss. So you don't end up with empty memory when you reboot in the future. It will still be there. VMware allows both legacy and persistent memory-aware applications to leverage this ultra-fast storage tier. And they were excited to show off their newly introduced TrueNAS M series at VMworld. And all TrueNAS M40 and M50 models leverage NVDIM persistent memory technology to provide a super-fast write cache, or slog, without any of the limitations of flash technology. And behind all that is, of course, uh, OpenZFS, and that will provide you with the proper data security. And the IX Systems booth team was Enterprise Storage Open Source Economics. IX Systems leverages the power of open source software combined with our enterprise class hardware and support to provide incredible low TCO storage for virtualization environments. Their TrueNAS unified storage and server offerings are an ideal solutions for your company's private cloud infrastructure. 
And combined with VMware NSX Hybrid uh, Connect, formerly known as VMware Hybrid Cloud Extension, you can seamlessly shift running systems into a public cloud environment through a true hybrid cloud solution. Oh wow! They seems to have they seem to have really uh, bumped up their game a little bit in the uh, enterprise storage space. Mm-hmm. Another special treat at this year's booth was IX Systems Vice President of Engineering Chris Moore giving demos of an early version of Project TrueView, a single pane of glass management solution for administration of multiple FreeNAS and TrueNAS systems. In addition to simplified administration and enhanced monitoring, TrueNAS uh, oh, Project TrueView will also provide role-based access control for finer grain permission management, and a beta version of Project TrueView is expected to be available at the end of this year. Hey, nice. And overall, they had a great week at VMworld 2018 with lots of good conversations with customers, press, analysts, and future customers about TrueNAS, DSC or TrueNAS backup appliance, IX system servers, of course. We've talked about them <laughs> a lot in recent episodes or in past episodes. Project TrueView and more, and their booth was more popular than ever. Yeah, and uh, always IX Systems is also showcasing uh, FreeBSD and what it can do because it's all behind their great uh, TrueNAS and uh, other solutions they have. So that's also a win for the BSD systems to be shown in this way. Uh, and so our last story uh, is end of life for NetBSD 6. Uh, in keeping with NetBSD's policy of supporting only the latest 8.x and the next most recent 7.x, uh, the Recent release of NetBSD 8.0 marks the end of life for FreeBSD or NetBSD 6. Um, yeah, FreeBSD 6 has been end of life for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. So NetBSD 6.x, so that's 6.0, 6.1, etc., um, are end of life. Uh, as in the past, a month of overlap support has been provided in order to ease your migration, but your window is closing. It's time to get upgraded to NetBSD 7 or 8. Uh, Similar reminder, the end of life for FreeBSD 11.1 is approaching rapidly. Um, It will be, I think, the end of September. Yes, a couple of weeks. uh, We'll go out of support and stop getting security updates on September 30th. Uh, You've had, we give you three months to upgrade, uh, and you've already used up two of those. So you have uh, less than a month left to upgrade to 11.2. Uh, and get all the fixes. Yeah, and the features that that it brings. So that's a good uh, <laughs> strategy of you know climbing a little bit earlier or uh, yeah. higher the version numbers. <laughs> and uh, for FreeBSD ten point four, your uh, five years of support is coming to an end uh, in October. So on October thirty first, it will be the whole year of support provided for ten point four. And the end of the five years provided for 10.x. So yeah, now, five years. a really good time to be running FreeBSD 11.2, which I will say is the best FreeBSD yet. Mm-hmm. There will be uh, ways to upgrade, of course, using either via source compile or FreeBSD update. Yep. Uh, however, you've upgraded every other time in the past. Yep. No surprise there. Time for Beastie Bits this week with a blast from the past, OpenBSD 3.7 CD artwork. We thought this would be nice to look at again from 2005. You uh, remember, hopefully, buying those? 
Nope. I think I'd heard of OpenBSD and logged into it once uh, <laughs> and messed with the firewall or something. Uh, mm. <clears throat> I think that was back when PF was new. Maybe? Uh, I don't remember. Could be, yeah. It might have still it, been IPF then. I don't remember. Anyway. 13, 13 uh, years ago. Well, yeah, They got their uh, CD cover art here with the Puffy as... Uh, What's Wait, the main what's the yeah? Um, <laughs> chat room, where are you? Help, helping us. Um, <laughs> oh dear, what, what, what? Dorothy. There we go. Dorothy, of course, that's her name. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> um, and remember, track there? two is audio because OpenBSD always comes with some music. Yeah, with a song, a release song, yeah. and some nice artwork in the CD sleeves. Yep. Uh, next, uh, I think the poll's already over now, but uh, Roman Zolotarev has been wondering how many instances of BSD do you run? Trying to get an idea of how many BSD machines are out there. Um, sadly, that's a very hard question to answer, even if you don't consider what exactly counts as a BSD machine. You know, does every PlayStation count? Because that's literally just FreeBSD 9. Um, and, you know, but do you count the bits of FreeBSD that are in like the in-dash computers and cars? It's like, well, mm -hmm. it's not really FreeBSD, no. But there's some FreeBSD in it. And... Yeah, but you're not actually actively running it. I, I guess in, he meant installing and right. administering so servers. when and... you come that, that's still <laughs> very hard to decide what counts and what doesn't, how many there are. Because... Yeah. You know, there are places with thousands of FreeBSD machines that don't tell anyone they run FreeBSD. Usually the mm -hmm. people using the machine don't even know that it's FreeBSD. <laughs> but uh, yeah, at least for a rough uh, indication where how many people are installing or how many machines they administer for the BSDs. Yeah, it's just, and I'm saying, it's, it's very hard to get anywhere near an accurate count. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of uh, comments and responses to that one with uh, an interesting uh, picture also here. So yeah, so uh, check that out. And maybe we have uh, your... Michael Lucas uh, on Tuesday, August 21st. Uh, he'll be talking about, excuse me, about his book on Ed at Southeast Michigan BSD User Group. Well, I think he already did if it's August. Yes, this one is over now. Uh, but he says, I, I doubt that any user group or conference will want me to show up and talk about Ed, even <laughs> though it is the standard text editor. Uh, so yeah, this is probably your only chance to see this talk. <laughs> oh, it wasn't recorded? No, they don't uh, record, Do the record there. Okay. Yeah, well, then you have to had to be there in person to see the talk. All right, uh, there's also news from the OpenBSD side of things. RM64 gains RedGuard. So this is over at the OpenBSD journal on deadly.org. And in a series of commits, Todd Mortimer has added RedGuard in the ARM64 platform. And you can see the commit messages here. So that will... Yep, so they refactored some of the RedGuard changes to LLVM to be uh, more architecture agnostic and separate out the architecture specific bits, uh, making it easier to share code and add their AR64 bits. And so now their version of Clang uh, 
builds Retguard into our, uh, the AMD 64 in addition to ARM 64. Mm, good. And we have also a call for participation for next year's FOSDEM, which will be in Brussels, like always, uh, on yep. the 2nd uh, and 3rd of February, mm -hmm. 2019. And they have um, call for papers, basically, open for the main tracks, uh, which are a lot of them in parallel. And key dates are 13th of October for the deadline for the first batch of main track proposals, November 3rd for the final deadline of main track proposals, as well as November 1st onwards, uh, main track talks announced. And don't forget about the dev rooms, because there will probably yes. be a BSD dev room. Those happen sooner. Uh, so if you want to have a developer room uh, on a topic or a project uh, at FOSDEM, you have to apply by September 20th. Uh, on September 30th, they'll announce the rooms that have been accepted. And then you'll have two weeks until October 16th um, for the developer rooms to issue their call for participation uh, and uh, for us to fill up that dev room with talk slots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then we should uh, have a couple of BSD folks in the, in the room and hopefully fill it uh, for a full day. And then people who are at FOSDEM can join in and see the talks. Uh, there are also stands if you are an open source project and uh, other lightning talks are also possible. See the full uh, call for participation page and uh, submit something. Yep. Are you making sure the foundation has a table? Uh, I'm working on that. Yeah, it's uh, cool. going to happen as well as a dev summit on the Friday before. So that's on my um, to-do list, <laughs> among other things. But yeah, it will it will happen, I'm, I'm sure. And last but not least, uh, we have FreeBSD OPB for Beehive ARM64 utils. Yep. So with this, uh, FreeBSD guest is able to boot and start a rescue shell. A minimal set of user-based programs is available, including Vertio devices, uh, Vertio net, Vertio block, and Vertio console, and the Vertio random device generator. The FreeBSD host has been testing using the Foundation Platform Emulator from ARM's website. So this is Beehive running on FreeBSD on ARM. Uh, okay. So you will have a FreeBSD installed either on bare metal or in a virtual machine and need to create uh, a guest. Okay, an ARM64 Beehive is an interesting uh, prospect to have. And making it a little bit easier to use uh, is also good. Very nice. And they have all the instructions here. So um, basically, you can use the ARM Foundation emulator uh, to emulate a piece of ARM hardware. Um, there are a couple that have uh, bits of hardware you can actually buy that have the virtualization support. I don't know exactly what they are. And the student doing this work does not have one. Uh, mm. But that's why it's mostly done with the Foundation emulator so far. But it's interesting to see this being available and uh, hope to see it go forward. Yep. All right. <clears throat> now, time for our feedback and questions section. We have a couple of submissions, but keep them coming. Send them to feedback at bsdnow.tv so that we have questions that we can answer. Otherwise, yes. it will be a very like, empty section. <laughs> we like comments and other information too, but questions uh, help make this part of the show. And we try to answer them in time so you don't have to wait for weeks until the answer appears on the show, um, depending on how many people are still in the queue. Uh, so for this week, we have uh, starting with Eric, a free NAS for vacation. 
and mm -hmm. starting with at home we use libre.elec on pi 3 for the front end with the freenas mini at the back end uh, we went on vacation and i took the pi 3 and copied files from the freenas to a linux laptop it mostly works but had problems with file dates and other things I don't want to bring my FreeNAS Mini on vacation, but do you have any thoughts or advice uh, on a more portable FreeNAS system? I know it would need to drive uh, two drives and ECC to do it right, but if only it had uh, to be good enough for a week at the beach, it would be uh, a laptop would good for some kind of mini PC work. Yeah, um, like you can spin up a FreeNAS VM on your regular laptop running whatever OS you want. Uh, and then configure it to replicate a certain data set to that machine and then take it with you, whether that machine is uh, something small or just your laptop with a VM or whatever. Um, mm. The key there is you have to set up your FreeNAS so that you do, you kind of break your content up into as many different data sets as makes sense so that you can be like, I'm just going to take these two chunks with me. Uh, so I do this. So my home NAS has a data set with all of my work in progress source code on it. Because you wrote and on the road. a conference, I just snapshot that and replicate that whole bundle over to my laptop, take it with me, work on it for a week at a conference, and then bring it home and sync it back to the NAS. Mm. Yeah, and for uh, so vacations. You can do that with media, although, you know, sometimes, yes, all you really want is I'm going to copy these eight files, uh, you know, these eight conference talks I haven't watched yet and put take them with me and I'll have something to watch on the plane. Yeah. And on the vacation, it would be probably pictures and videos that you want to sync back to your stable storage or to your main... Right. It, yes, uh, it also means has. that you can uh, do it that way so that they're already ZFSified and easy to sync back to your NAS. Mm-hmm. It also should be light and uh, easy to carry around. And if you're on the beach, uh, it shouldn't uh, be too uh, difficult against... Yeah, like uh, if I was going to be gone for long sand enough and stuff. I, I needed to do something like that, something like one of those NUC mini PCs, um, you know, unless you're really paranoid, you probably don't actually need two drives and the ECC is not a big deal for... Again, right, this is for temporary usage. It's not your main NAS that you're putting all your hopes and dreams into. This is a <laughs> replica that's designed to be portable. Yeah. Yeah, so that's hopefully a bit of an um, idea for you to um, build such a system or get one of those. You know, so Maybe in a couple of years, uh, you'll just be able to use a portable hard drive because you'll be able to use ZFS <laughs> oh, bless you. on Mac and Windows. You can already oh, do yeah. it on Mac. So if you have an external hard drive in a Mac, you can plug the hard drive into your NAS, sync the data set you want onto it, and then plug it into your Mac and mount it with ZFS. Uh, yeah, the Windows support finally... is, is coming slowly. You know, there's only one person working on it, but he's got it working. Yeah, that would be the exchange format for all these different operating systems, the one file system to unite them all, at, at least for data. Well, uh, especially copying. because it's easier to sync now, though sync is only one way, right? If you modify some files on the NAS and modify some files on the external hard drive, it's not going to sort out the differences for you. But if it's, I transfer the files I want to the external hard drive, I take it with me, I make some changes, I come back, you plug the hard drive in, you replicate back the other way from the external to your main pool, 
and you only had to copy the files that actually changed, right? Actually, the blocks of the files that actually changed. Um, so it's a lot faster than having to do something like rsync or sync thing or whatever. Yep. Yeah, all right. That's hopefully uh, answering the question. And next up is Patrick. I think I know who that is. So Long Live Unix is the title. And it goes like this. Hey, guys, looking forward to meeting you in Bucharest. Yeah, you will go to the conference. Excellent. You're a BSDCon. Um, if you want to read the early history of Unix in greater detail, I wholeheartedly recommend this book. Here's the link to Amazon. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, yeah. Oh, that looks, yeah. A quarter century of Unix. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Peter Salas. Yeah. We know who that is. Um, and if you are a computer history nerd, he continues, as I am, I get this too while you are at it. Another Amazon link here. Uh, casting the net. Oh, yeah, from ARPANET to Internet and beyond for how the Internet uh, got to where it is today in the early days. And if you're really into ancient Unix, get this third link. You don't need to stare at that nth generation photocopy. Okay, and that one is Lion's Commentary on Unix. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's basically literally the source code for old Unix printed out with and then annotated with uh, commentary. Mm. While it was still <laughs> able to print that, I mean, yeah, it, and it's it's the closest thing between. you would get to you know Mystery Science Theater three thousand on the Unix source code. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, so something for people who have uh, no idea what to what book to read next. This is. Uh, mm -hmm of good suggestions. Thank you, Patrick. And yeah, mm -hmm. see you at EuroBSDCon. Okay, next up is Jason with uh, full MP3 recordings. Oh, that sounds interesting. Audio. Uh, it starts with, good morning, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Uh, been asked back in episode 255, there's the link, uh, if there was a full feed, you were correct with the answer there is not, and the audio was uh, not moved over to the new provider, as he found out, though, invest within investigations or so through investigations. the uh, RSS feeds of the uh, MP3 only downloads? Yeah, people have been asking us about those. Uh, it was a shame to lose the audio history of the podcast as it contains a lot of information and commentary on the BSDs and pretty much a prime source for anything that is interested. Um, so to that, I have pulled the audio streams from all the high-def videos to make up the difference from the currently available MP3s and created easily accessible MP3 files for anyone to refer to. Hey, nice. They're all available here. There's the link in the show notes, of course, uh, including an index.txt file to feed into your download client along with the applicable SHA-512 for each file. And he'll continue to update the archive with the weekly feed to keep it fresh. Keep up the great work and entertainment. And thank you, Jason. Hey, wow. I think there is an RSS feed somewhere. I need to go look for that. Can we link uh, to that yes, one? thank from... you very much. Yeah, and can yeah, we link uh, we should to probably put it in, uh, in the news section on the website. Yeah, this is externally maintained, but um, someone is putting in effort to give us yeah. MP3s of the no, videos. It's, it's Jason. Mm, yeah. Cool. Jason. Very nice. <laughs> All right. Um, Bastion is last uh, with a question about jails and kernel. So here goes. At the time when FreeBSD 11.2 was released to the public, I was given a new project. I chose to install my project in an IOKH jail and to avoid in, uh, upgrading to 11.2 soon, I choose 11.2 image from the IOKH list and install the project to this 11.2 base image. The host at that time was 11.1, he thinks. Well, 
I completed it with the installation, tested that everything worked, and did one more thing, reboot the whole server. So we rebooted the whole server, everything came back except the IO cage jail. Uh, after some investigations, I discovered that IOCage didn't allow jail to have newer kernel that the host has. Uh, it was a bug in IOCage's implementation, which is now fixed. Um, now the question: Why is jail's kernel? Uh, why can't the jail's kernel be newer than the host's? Well, in general, I don't know why the jail has a kernel. Are you sure it does? I know in Easy Jail we don't include the kernel because the kernel in the jail doesn't run. It's it's literally yeah. not used now. If the user land uh, in the jail is newer than the kernel you're running on, that's not likely to work. Uh, it might work by accident, uh, but you will notice certain things might not work, like yeah, running NetSat or SockStat or TOP or PS and so on can often fail because they're looking for features that aren't there anymore or uh, aren't there yet. Have in changed, yeah. If you try to run the TOP from FreeBSD 12, on FreeBSD 11.1, it won't work because it... Uh, there have been changes. It, yeah. it, it looks for some new values from ZFS that aren't there. Um, whereas, if you run the top from 11.1 on FreeBSD 12, it'll work because 12 has the compatibility shims to make the stuff from 11 still work. So you can usually get away with running a jail any version older than your running kernel. Going newer is harder. Inside the same branch, 11.x might mostly work, but is probably not very well advised. You know, if you're going to upgrade the host to 11.2 pretty soon. Maybe it was okay. Mm. Uh, but in general, that's Keep why. both in sync. Yeah. Jail, uh, kernel and user land should be... But yes, uh, it, it might have been the API version they meant, not the kernel, because it would be silly to install a kernel in a jail because it's, it's not like 200 true. megabytes of files that are never used. Yeah, because it's run through other ways and starts differently. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Yes, this is probably just a, a bug in IO cage, but they I, they were trying to save you from yourself. Uh, so yeah, it's a safety precaution too. And usually they warn when you update that there's a difference between the host system and the, the jail. But yeah, it's good to remind people that this is not the best way to run your your jails. Yes, uh, you know, Pudrier will yell at you if you try to run a jail that's newer than the host. But older is fine. Like we we used FreeBSD twelve systems to build the packages for ten four and eleven one and eleven two and so on. Uh, yeah, and that works fine. And that's actually the way to re remain on these old versions if you like to yeah. and keep yeah. it in a jail uh, and. There's there's a post on Michael Lucas's blog about running FreeBSD 4.11 in a jail on FreeBSD 11. Yeah, because there might be this one application that's built for this old version and can't be changed or upgraded. And yeah, but that's the only way to keep it alive. Yep. Or I mean, despite running it in a virtual machine. But yep. yeah. Okay. Uh, hopefully that was the answer to your question. And uh, yeah, that is the end of our show for this week and uh, next week Alan will be back from the ZFS Dev Summit hopefully with a lot of new things to tell us about what's been developed or what's in the pipeline and, and we'll have yeah. a, a rushed episode for you before we head off to Europe <laughs> yeah it's coming uh, sooner rather than later and um, there's a lot of activity still uh, around it but uh, we hope to have a nice conference there with two days of Dev Summit and two days of conference talks <laughs>